0: you may be seated and I'll ask you to turn to first Peter chapter 2 and it could be an interesting morning this morning I was driving into church just like I do you know every Sunday I did have to go by my workplace just briefly but then I took a wrong turn coming to church it took me about 10 minutes out of the way and then a while ago, I was uh, I picked up my glasses case and thought, "Well, that feels kind of light." And sure enough, I got a really nice case with me, but I don't have any glasses with me, so could be interesting. First Peter chapter two, and we're going to read verses one through twelve. I'll just be speaking on verses one through thir- one through three. But we'll read to give context and also to kind of prime the pump for next week as we get into it. And as you guys know, when you read through God's word, it always has a continuity that is there. And so uh, this will kind of pull us on through to the next set of scripture. So as I like to do, if I'll, I'll ask you to stand if you're physically able and we'll read 1 P- Peter chapter 2. This is what it says to us. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's bow to pray. Lord, at various points in our life, you impress us, our need for you in our feelings of incapacity or inability and just a general sense of needing to depend on you Lord I'm thankful that you do that uh, for all of us at various times so that we not run away from you or think that we don't need you there is a particular sense in which we come to you for understanding in your word that it would enliven our hearts that it would encourage us that it would set us on the right path And there's also clarity that apart from your spirit and apart from your undertaking, that the words of an individual don't carry much weight. And so I ask this morning for your help. I pray that my mind would be clear in ways that would be beneficial to your people. I pray that their minds would be clear in a way that would allow the truth of your word to sink into their souls. And we ask simply for your help, knowing that we can come to you confidently Because you desire to work on our behalf. And so I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Most people, when they come to the Lord at some point, when they become a believer, uh, a follower of Christ, one of the next questions, one of the biggest questions that we tend to have is how is it that we grow as a Christian? How are we going to move forward in our belief in Christ? And that's an extremely important question for a few reasons. One of the strong reasons we saw last week as Matt was uh, going through the section of verses that he was uh, going through where it said, Be holy because God himself is holy. So, sorry, I'm trying to arrange this so I don't have the, the in and out. We'll see what happens there. So it says to us, be holy because God is holy. And so in our growth in our Christian life, we want to be moving towards holiness. But the question remains, how do we grow and how do we become holy? Another reason that it's important to us is because the book of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So at first that might sound a little bit harsh that if you are not holy then you cannot see God and surely as we look at our lives then we find ourselves on the outside of that uh, holiness or at least that's our perception of it. So it might sound harsh at first and and it stands to reason on one hand but it can be encouraging on the other hand. It stands to reason because all throughout the Bible from the very beginning of it the Bible insists that if we are genuinely followers of Christ that there are going to be life changes as a result. That is when we come to Christ there is a marked change, a marked difference in who we are thereafter. Some of the changes might be immediate. Some of the changes may take time, might have to be worked out. But change according to scripture will come if we become followers of Jesus. So upon first hearing this, maybe we become discouraged, but, but we don't have to yield to that discouragement because it's God himself who said that he would put in us a new heart and a new mind, and he would put that into all of his followers, and he would make us different people. But still the question remains, how is it that we lead a changed life? How do we become different How do we become genuinely different rather than just turning over a new leaf every so often? Or as Matt was saying last week, how is it that we we change from just being stirred to actually being changed? What is it that makes us a new person? How do we progress in this Christian life? Or if we kind of put it on another spin or another way, how do we keep from wasting our lives on things that just simply do not matter? How do we grow as a Christian? Now, when we come to this text, we're just dealing with three verses, and so we have to appeal to some other parts of Scripture. But the best thing to do as we're trying to understand this is to boil it down as simply as we possibly can. And so I've laid out these three verses in this way. There's two instructions, one explanation, and one contingency. So let me start, first of all, just naming what these are so we know where we're headed in this process. There's two instructions. The first one that we read was, so put away. So there are going to be some things that we need to leave behind. And then it says, so desire spiritual milk. So there are going to be some things that we need to take on. Now there was an explanation that if we do these two things, we can grow, so that you can grow. But there was a contingency, and the contingency is if you have tasted that God is good. So we'll walk our, our way through these three verses kind of following that, that process this morning. You noted the very first word of, of chapter 2, verse 1 is so. Maybe the translation you're reading may have started with Therefore. But so tells us that what we're getting ready to hear, what we're getting ready to read in in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 is predicated on what came before in chapter 1. What we're hearing today is based on what we heard last week or the last couple of weeks and then what is said, we're supposed to take a specific action. But before we can get to that specific action, we need to see what leads to the action. So, if we, we could say it like this, the so in chapter 2 doesn't make much sense unless we have the what of chapter 1. So in order to stand those things, these understand these directors for living a new life, we're going to have to look at the lay of the land. Now, I'm not going to re-preach chapter 1, but I do need to point out some specific things that are laid out for us there. And so I'm just going to point out chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 to summarize one of those items. And the item is that we have an unfading home. This is what verse 3 through 5 of chapter 1 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power of being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And if we try to summarize what those three verses said, it would be simply this, that God has caused us to be born again. God has reserved for us a home in heaven. God is keeping us by his power. We have an unfading home. The next part of chapter 1 that's pertinent to our conversation this morning is that we have an unperishing Christ. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 say this, So we have an unfading home, but we have an unperishing Christ. And the, th- the way that's laid out for us in those three verses is that God ransomed us by the death of Christ. God raised us by the resurrection of Christ. God saved us by faith in Christ. And so we have an unperishing Christ. So we're resting on these two things, plus a third that I'll mention in a second, that we have an unfading home that will not go away. We have an unperishing Christ who will never be diminished, who will never die, who will never pass off the scene. And then thirdly, we have an indestructible word. You see that at some verse that I can't read the number of right now, but it's around verse 18 or 19, somewhere in that area. In larger print, I do have this where it says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, to the living and abiding word of God. Because all flesh is like grass, And all its glory like the flowers of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we have an indestructible word. God gave us new life. God gave us his word. God gave us his good news. And all of these three things the unfading home, the unperishing Christ, the indestructible word, all of this provides for us a living hope that Peter talked about in the beginning portion of verse of chapter 1. Our future is secured. Our past is forgiven. Our present is guarded. Despite everything that goes on in the world, our hope lives on. It continues again, uh, over and over again. So we find in the first part of chapter 1 that God intervened on our behalf. He stepped in. God offers sinners at the expense of God's offers grace to sinners at the expense of the life of his son. He doesn't ask people to be good. He asks them to trust what he has done for them. Now, the readers of the Hebrew Old Testament would be alert to this pattern that Peter is kind of developing. You will remember, I'm hopeful, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. And when we normally come to the Ten Commandments, we start out where it, where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no, make for yourself no graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And on it goes through the ten, uh, ten Commandments that were given. The first four having to do with our relationship with God, the last six having to do with our relationship with man. But too frequently we start with the commandment chapter 1, or or commandment 1, but do you recall from your reading in the past what precedes command 1? The Ten Commandments are are written for us in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, and in both places where the Ten Commandments are listed, they are prefaced by a particular story and a particular verse. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, you should have no other gods before me. None of the other gods went down to Egypt to rescue you. None of the other gods brought any kind of life to you. All of the other gods left you in your bondage. I delivered you from the land of Egypt. I delivered you out of your slavery so that you do not need to have any other gods before me. You don't need to make any kind of graven image that make, might make you want to worship some... Uh, Uh, handmade idol because my love extends to thousands of generations you should not take my name in vain because I'm a serious God who does seriously good things and so my name should not be used flippantly or as if it doesn't matter or or just as, as as a byword and on it goes through these Ten Commandments but it is all predicated on this first piece that God has delivered his people out of the land of Egypt and delivered them from slavery and so it is with us. When we begin to work our way towards the so of what we need to do of chapter 2, it's all predicated on this, that God rescued us out of our slavery. God rescued us out of our sin. God rescued us out of our death. And so now we can turn our attention to how we ought to, to behave and the things that we should do. If we become a follower of Christ... What is it that we're now supposed to do? And this really gets to the heart of the question of a lot of people. Yes, we do, in fact, want to live the Christian life. We do, in fact, want to be holy. But how do we do that? So we'll begin with these two instructions. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And the first thing he commands us here is to put away certain behaviors. In the list here, there's five that are named. I just read them to you. Malice, deceit, hypocrisies, envies, slanders. The list isn't an exhaustive list that, of everything that we need to put off. It relates particularly to how we're supposed to love one another and the, and those things that can derail our love for one another, as, as Matt spoke about at the end of last week. There are other verses in the Bible that lay out for us a myriad of things that we're supposed to... And frequently in Scripture, the Bible uses this imagery of, of taking off the old that is, is stained, the old ugly behavior, and in place of it, putting on something new that is clean. In contrast to that, you're supposed to take off the old, but the other side of that is that we're supposed to now desire the true spiritual milk, the pure spiritual milk. Desire what is essential there are some behaviors that we're inclined to follow that we should not follow. And there are some other behaviors that we might not be inclined to follow that we should follow. And the way to grow spiritually is to learn how to act and how to address those, those desires that we have. Essentially, what we have here is two ways of living being discussed. One way of living is largely according to how we feel at the moment. The other way of living is according to a new way of life. And again, when we come to this, this has been laid out for us in Scripture before, and we can take just the first psalm of the book of Psalms that you would be familiar with likely. And this psalm is kind of the introductory uh, portion to the rest of the psalms, and this is what it says. And notice the two ways of living. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of... Who walks... I'm sorry, let me start again. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor finds his place with the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree that's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In everything he does he prospers, but the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Always through Scripture, we're presented two different ways of living. One way is a broad way that many follow, And the other way is a narrow way that few follow. So there are always two ways of living presented to us. But our world currently is awash with the idea that doing anything that is contrary to the way that we feel is being inauthentic to our true selves. We're constantly told this. That we should be true to ourselves. Whatever is our most natural, innate desire is what has to be acted on. And if we do not act on that, then we're being inauthentic and we're not fulfilling the destiny that we're supposed to have. Essentially, the idea is that whatever makes us immediately happy is what we should do. If it feels right, do it. If it's self-fulfilling, engage in it. But that's precisely what the Bible describes as the old way of life. It might come as a surprise to some of us that we are supposed to tell ourselves no about some things. Some things that maybe we would really like to do. And we are supposed to tell ourselves to, to, yes, do some things that perhaps we would not really care to do. So much of our society has been given over to the idea that anything that intrudes on our innate desires is somehow stifling us and making us less than we ought to be than we ought to be so th- this is easily seen check out nearly any movie and it's all about self fulfillment this is disney right on up or read nearly any self help magazine and there'll be all sorts of explanations about how you can actualize yourself you'll be encouraged to act on your desires you'll be encouraged to authenticate your feelings you'll be encouraged to fulfill your personal destiny. Live your truth is kind of the catchphrase of our day. And if I were the devil, I should clarify that I'm not, if I were the devil and I somehow wanted to stay behind the scenes and still accomplish my agenda, I could hardly choose a better way to accomplish my ends than to encourage everybody to live their own truth but maybe if we're going to talk about truth, we should actually be honest with one another. I'm not different from most people, and living my truth isn't very pleasant. Too often, I'd rather punch people in the nose than be kind. Too often, I'd rather throw things across the room than to rule my anger. Too often, I would rather think about how great I am and about how sorry you are than I would think humble thoughts. This continual self affirmation is directly contrary to how spiritual growth occurs. The Bible consistently conveys that we're supposed to put off the old self and put on the new self. The old self, we re- read earlier in chapter 1, is futile, it's empty, it's in contrast to what God is actually doing, because what God is doing abides forever. And that's why it says in chapter 1 verse 14 that we read a couple of weeks ago to not be conformed in the passions of our ignorance. We know better. That's why it tells us in chapter 1 verse 18 that we were ransomed from futile ways. We were bought back from those empty ways. We were delivered from living beneath what God has made us to be. We are told to live holy because God himself is holy. So we're supposed to stop living one way and to begin living another way. Salvation, belief in Christ, is supposed to have significant, lasting, and pivotal change in our lives. Most of us know that there are certain things that we must stop doing if we are followers of Christ. And there are other things that we ought to do. But still, how are we supposed to do that? Even knowing that doesn't deliver us into the doing of it. So the intention to stop certain behaviors is an instruction that is, is absorbed into another instruction, the second instruction that actually in the, in the text has the primary emphasis. So it's a little bit like saying this. Go to the USS North Carolina. Go visit the USS North Carolina when you go to Wilmington, North Carolina. You can't do the first instruction unless you also do the second instruction. And that's what's going on inside of this verse 1. You cannot put off certain things unless you do the second thing of um, pursuing the pure spiritual milk. The second instruction is to crave that pure spiritual milk. It has to do with desiring what is true and substantive in contrast to what is passing away. And it gets comes just on the heels of the Bible being described as the living and everlasting word of God, what it points to in total here is the necessity of God's word in the effort to grow spiritually. God's word informs our minds and it reshapes our view of the world and it reorients us in what is important. And so when the text says, don't be conformed to a particular way, what we need to do, on the other hand, is be conformed to God's way. And so here is the explanation. Um, in verse 2b, Long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, I think it's important here that I slow down a little bit and say this plain. No saint, no believer in Christ... Should mistakenly assume that they can feel their way into spiritual maturity. It will not happen. If we try to get ourselves into a particular state of mind so that spiritual maturity uh, occurs, we're going to find ourselves severely disappointed. Spiritual growth is a miracle, but it is not irrational, it is hard. But it's simple. You don't need a college degree. You don't need a high school diploma. You don't need a seminary education. It can all be boiled down to a child song that I used to sing. Now, I'm aware that I was a child 50 years ago and that people might not know this song. But a song that we sang went something like this. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. Does anybody else know that song? A few of us, oh, even some young people, amazing. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. That's simple. The converse is in the song as well. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you will shrink, shrink, shrink. So, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. The Bible and prayer as simple as they are, are the spiritual milk that will make us grow in the Lord. Spiritual growth doesn't come through sudden feelings as welcome as they might be. Spiritual growth comes through thinking deeply about those things that matter. We've already seen that we're not to conform to our former way of thinking. And, And Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He goes through chapters 1 through 11, and he describes the salvation that God has given to us. And then he gets to chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, in light of everything that has gone on in the salvation that God has brought to us in chapters 1 through 11, do not be being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips paraphrased it to say this, stop letting the world squeeze you into its mold. There's two ways of living, as I said, and the broad way is the popular way. The narrow way is the right way. That is why, Paul says, the way, Paul says, to stop being conformed to the world is through the renewing of our minds. We have been born again. We need renewed minds. That means that we're going to have to think differently about life, about people, about God. And it won't happen overnight. We go gradually to God's word and gradually it reshapes us into holy people. We gradually learn to live as God made us. Think about the sins that we are to put off. A steady diet of God's word will help us see that if we treat people deceitfully, we dishonor God, but we also demean people. If we slander people, we speak against God's creation and we destabilize their reputations. If we're hypocrites towards people, we distort God's reality and we encourage people to believe lies. And so God's word sets about to renew our minds. It helps us see that our behaviors affects the glory of God and the good of his creation. It helps us to discern whether our immediate desire is the best desire. So the word, God's word, is central to our growth. That is why we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Can I just demonstrate a second how this works in our lives? And I started to do a picture on the screen. Wasn't sure if it would be helpful or not. But Second Peter chapter 1, if you can flip to that passage. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3. I won't take too long here, but I want to at least put into our minds how it is that God's word helps us grow. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. His, speaking of God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now we could sit down inside of that particular phrase and last there for quite a while. God's divine power has given to us all things that we need that pertains to life and to godliness that is there is no lack in any believer that keeps them from being able to live a life of the life of godliness and the godliness of life both of those things now but it does say god's divine power has granted us all these things that pertain to life and godliness but then it says through so the how comes after that through The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. So how is it that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Well, it's happened through our knowledge of God. And how do we gain knowledge of God? It's through his word where he's revealed himself to us. He showed us what he is like. And so we go to his word. And when we go to his word, what do we see? We see that he has called us to his own glory and his excellence. And so what, when we look at what God is like, he's full of glory, he's full of excellence. But out of this glory and excellence, it goes to the next words. It says, by which, so by God's glory and by God's excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So track what's going on here. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's done it by showing us the knowledge of God. And as he shows us the knowledge of God, he shows us about the glories and excellencies of God. And out of the glories and excellencies of God, he's given to us very great and exceedingly good promises. And then it says, so that through these great and good promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So you see what is happening here. When we put ourselves into God's word, we see the glory of God. We find from the glory of God that he is called uh, out of the glory of God. He has given to us great and exceeding promises. And so that by believing in those promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. So God has already given us everything that we need for life and godliness as we go to his word and find out what he is like. But then it says at verse 5, for this very reason for what reason because God has given us these promises that are based on his character that will bring us forth into maturity in the Christian life for this very reason make every effort so there's going to be strain and effort that's involved in in becoming mature in our faith So there's a biblical balance that gets represented here. There's two sides of the same coin. Paul says it this way in the book of Colossians. For this I toil, for this I work, struggling with all his energy that works powerfully within me. Have you ever wondered if God's power is at work in Paul, why he was struggling? Surely God's power can overcome all evil, so why is it a struggle and why is it a struggle for us? But God's designed it this way. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful in this, but it's, it's a little bit like a three-legged race. Um, if you've ever tried to do that, and you've out, tried to outrun your partner, it, it just doesn't work. You've got to be working in uh, tandem with each other. Or if you just kind of give up and, and lay there like a, uh, a garbage bag or something, they, they can't move forward either. So when God uh, produces maturity in us, it does require good effort. There's, there's, there's some hardness that is involved with it. But we're working based on the promises that God has given us. So let me see if I can illustrate how this will play out, let's just say, with the envy that we read about in 1 Peter chapter 2. If I'm tempted to be envious, I should look to the promises of God. And so I should open up God's word and I should say, okay, what has God said? Well, in Philippians, he has promised that he will supply all my needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. In Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack any good thing. And I could go through and find other verses that talk about God's provision for me. And this then is where the battle starts. There are some things that I'm feeling very profoundly with my envy. But there are some promises that are laid out in God's Word that, that address those particular things. And the struggle is to believe God's Word over my feelings. And so what we do is engage in this battle. And as we're engaging in this battle, we're, we're given the Spirit who enlivens these promises in us. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says that the sanctifying work or the making holy work that the Spirit does within us. So we battle this feeling with the Word of God. What if I'm concerned about the direction of my life? We can think about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you'll put on. God looks after the birds of the air. God looks at the flowers of the field. He knows what we need. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So when I'm struggling against this, the struggle is to believe what God has said versus believing what I now feel. That is a struggle towards Christian maturity. If I'm full of pride, I can think about verses like this. Just simply, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I would encourage you, if you're a younger saint or even if you're not a younger saint, If you're struggling with some sin, ask around. Look at the people around you and talk to them and ask them, how did you find victory over this sin in your life? And you may look at them now and think, well, they're so mature as a believer. They seem so holy. Surely they never uh, put up or, or never struggled with these kinds of things. But what you're forgetting is you're seeing them 30, 40 years down the road. If you had seen them 30 years ago, you would have said, this guy's helpless. He's never going to grow in his Christian faith. Or this lady, she's so obstinate, there's no way she's going to move forward. But what has steadily happened over the course of the years is that God's word has reshaped and, and uh, transformed their thinking and transformed their minds. So now that they have good faith in Christ and they trust in him and they hang, hang on to these promises, and just, just talk to the other believers who have come to follow after Christ, and you'll find that their hope will become your hope and you will see how God's word has played its uh, role in their maturing as saints. There's one other item that we need to get here to here before we conclude. Because he says, put away these things, grab hold of the true spiritual milk because that will bring about spiritual maturity. But then at verse 3, it says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first step in answering the question of how we grow in faith is to find out where we are right now. Do we belong to Christ? Have we been delivered from spiritual slavery? We're not going to go anywhere in the Christian life if we are not a Christian, if we are not a Christ follower. But then that begs the question, how do we become a Christian? And there's probably a couple of different ways to say it, but there are at least two steps to becoming a follower of Jesus. The first step is that we need to know some objective truths about Christ. We need to know that he came to earth, that he lived a sinless life, and that he died for our sins. We need to understand that he took the wrath of God that was rightfully ours and he paid the penalty of our sin. We need to know that Christ was resurrected after three days in a tomb. And that he lives forever now and will one day come for those who trust him. But that's step one. Because the second step in becoming a Christian is also critical. Knowing about Christ is something that even the devil does. But being a follower of Christ implies that you place your trust in what you know about him. There's scholars across the world who know more than you and I put together about the facts of Jesus. But knowing facts about Jesus only makes you smart. It doesn't make you Christian. What makes you Christian is trusting Christ with this life and trusting him with the next. In fact, you trust him so much that your whole life takes a turn. It's a conversion from what you once were to something else. It is a conversion to being a Christian. If we have believed in Christ as our Savior, that is that we've trusted him to deliver us from our sins, then we can go on in these verses and we can go on in maturity. But if we're not a believer, not a follower of Christ, then these verses simply have no effect on us. That's why it says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. But if you are a follower of Christ and if you have tasted of his goodness and kindness, I close with just a few thoughts. Number one, holiness is not God's device to keep you from happiness. It's kind of portrayed that way in our world. But holiness does keep us from pursuing things that wage war against our souls. The pursuit of holiness is pursuing To uh, evade those things that wage war against our souls. The metaphor didn't flow very well there but you understand what I'm saying. Holiness keeps us from pursuing the things that wage war against our souls. Holiness does require us to treat people as creatures who have been made in the image of God. Think about all our sins against other people. Each of those demean them as God's created being in some way. Holiness does insist that we act as people who have a lasting and abiding value with dignity and a seriousness that is worthy of of the God who called us. Point number two. Whatever sin you struggle with, and when I say whatever, I mean whatever sin that you struggle with, be assured that that sin is not stronger than the power of the cross or the promise of God. It just isn't. It's not. There is no created thing in all the world that is more powerful than the power of Christ. Number three, the means of spiritual growth are very simple. It's just this. The word of God, prayer, and the people of God. That's it. Our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine or other war torn areas will, at some point, maybe not today, but at some point, they're gonna sit down with a Bible and their fellow sisters and brothers in Christ, and they're gonna pray. And they will be no less equipped than we are to become mature saints. That's all that it requires. We don't need to make it difficult or hard, it's simple obedience to the revealed and very clear Word of God. It's prayer that he will enable us to remember the promises that he's given us and leaning on one another to remind each other when our knees get weak and when our arms grow feeble. Let me just give this Old Testament story just very briefly. There was a man named Naaman who had leprosy. He was from a different country, Syria, I think, and he comes down to see either Elijah or Elisha, and he wants to be healed. Well, the instruction comes to him, go back home, wash in the river, and then you'll be healed. Well, it's a dirty river, a common river, and Naaman is too proud to do it. And so he turns around to leave he and his entourage, and they're heading away back to his homeland. And one of his servants says to him, hey, Naaman, if the prophet had asked you to do something tremendously difficult, you would have done that, wouldn't you? And, of course, the answer was yes. If it was difficult, Naaman was going to do it. He would do whatever it took if it was difficult. But what he tripped over was the common thing of just washing in the river that he had seen multiple, multiple times. Unfortunately, sometimes in our Christian lives, we're looking for the difficult thing to do Well, we really just need to wash in the river. We just need to read the Word. We need to pray. We need to lean on each other. So I'll leave you with this verse from hebrews chapter 13 it comes at the end of the book the closing two verses of the book and this is what it says now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant may he equip you with everything good so that you may do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. I'll ask you, if you will, to stand as we pray and prepare to sing. Lord, you've given us everything that we need in Christ. You've given us your spirit to convict and your spirit to comfort and your spirit to guide. You've given us your exceeding great and precious promises so that we can believe. And so I ask that you'd help us not to be uh, discouraged with our sin. Help us to be disappointed with it. Help us to remember that you set about to make us clean, to wash us, and to make us a royal priesthood. And so I ask that you would help us to avail ourselves of the blessing that you've given us in your word and through prayer and through one another so that we can grow in our walk with you. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.